Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Last night, President Donald Trump and Democratic challenger, former Vice President Joe Biden, faced off in what was actually a real debate. So I'm going to encourage us each and all to be praying for uh, the completion of a free and fair election here in these United States of America. Let us all be vigilant in terms of the material that we lift up between now and then uh, in what I will describe as the completion of the election process. So we certainly uh, all heard yesterday, if we were paying attention, that there are foreign actors and foreign countries who are interested in influencing uh, the U.S. presidential election process. Now, that may be uh, that may not be actually to the interest of any particular candidate or it may be. But the point is they're seeking to disrupt a fair and free election. And actually, fair and free elections are of concern to the overwhelming majority uh, of American voters. So as of yesterday, nearly 50 million people have already voted. I went and voted yesterday. Uh, Early voting continues in some places through next week. Election experts are predicting historic rates of voter turnout. So uh, I just wanted to quickly look at the numbers this morning. So according to the University of Florida professor, uh, which is my alma mater, which is why I picked him, because apparently there's lots of people writing about this. Anyway, Michael McDonald, he runs the U.S. Elections Project. Uh, By his count, more than 257 million people in the United States are 18 or older. So 257 million people in the United States, 18 or older, some of them not citizens, some of them for other reasons not eligible to vote. So the eligible uh, citizenry, the eligible, those eligible to vote is like 240 million. So estimates are that some 85 million of us uh, will vote early. And so... Uh, I mean, the number was already very close to 50 million yesterday, and that doesn't account for yesterday's voters, including me. So uh, if 85 million of us vote early and a similar number show up to vote in person on Election Day, well, if that happens, then the number of votes cast um, would surpass you know, 150 million. It would be a voter turnout of more than 62 percent, uh, and that would be um, significant. So let me just say this. If you're eligible to vote, vote. It's your civic responsibility. It's the exercise of a freedom that others around the world are literally dreaming about. And it is a freedom for which many have died. And so if you're eligible to vote, vote. All right. Yesterday, the Senate Judiciary Committee advanced the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to fill the vacancy on the Supreme Court. The full Senate is expected to take what I will describe as a party line vote. It will lead to her confirmation, but it will also highlight the very thin margin that Republicans hold in the U.S. Senate. And so uh, there are lots of down ballot um, candidates, obviously, Um, although you might be surprised when you go to vote. I was a little bit surprised when I went to vote. Um, There's not just two people uh, that you can vote for for president. Um, There's two pages of people. (laughs) 
I didn't know that. I was actually surprised by that. So there you go. A little surprise in the voter booth yesterday. Um, the Democratic candidate for the presidency, Joe Biden, in an answer to continued questions raised about court packing. This gets back to my uh, comment here that Amy Coney Barrett is moving through the process and uh, certainly barring some absolutely unforeseen event is going to be confirmed. So Joe Biden has been asked over and over again now um, about this question of court packing, which is something that the Democrats have said they intend to do, increase the number of uh, of justices on the Supreme Court because they would like to bring a uh, an ideological balance uh, to the court. And so, you know, Joe Biden is a candidate for president. He should have an answer to this question. He spent 36 years uh, in the U.S. Senate. Um, he spent eight years, one seat away, one door away, one step away, one heartbeat away. From the Oval Office, um, and yet he doesn't have an answer to this question. That is troubling. Oh, his answer is that he will impanel a blue ribbon commission and give them some six months to bring him um, thoughts and recommendations related to this. Now, I'm pretty confident that voters who are undecided, for whom this is a concern, that is not a leadership answer that they are going to be enthusiastic about. Uh, And so uh, that is probably a question that is going to be continued to be raised in in the coming days, as will obviously questions that um, are swirling around related to uh, his son, Hunter Biden, and um, a relationship, a business relationship, uh, the details of which I think we will have more information on in the coming days. So we will probably talk about it as it emerges. Um, but I've been looking forward all week to my conversation with Matthew Hawkins, and he is waiting in the wings right now. So up next, we're going to Look at ourselves a little bit via something called the PRRI American Values Survey. This is the 2020 edition. It gives us an opportunity to look at ourselves and compare ourselves as evangelical Christians to kind of everybody else in the culture in terms of the values that we hold and desire to see expressed in our common life. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Matthew Hawkins. You can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com or on Twitter at MTHawk, where I am letting everybody know right now that we're talking together. Um, Matt, uh, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. What a week. Yeah, what a week. week. It's every week. Every week I say that every week. So um, I really, really, I've been waiting. Um, This this, this, um, American Values Survey 2020 um, actually came out several days ago, but I've been waiting. I have not talked about it yet. I've I've been holding on to it. Um, because I wanted to, to it for me. Oh my yes, goodness! Yes, for you. I'm so honored for you. Well, because I feel like um, there's a little bit of a historical perspective to be brought to bear. Um, yeah. In in specifically, I definitely want to get to um, just the way evangelical Christians view the the issue of abortion, so yeah. radically different than the rest of the population. So, um, yeah. how about tell people what the PRRI American Values Survey is? And then um, maybe your top line observations, and that'll be an entry point to our conversation. Yeah. Um, so PRRI is uh, one of the more uh, incredible research uh, groups out there, um, kind of on, on tier, I'd say, with uh, Gallup and Pew. And so uh, policy and politics nerds like you and me uh, want to see what we want to see what they glean from their research. Uh, and they usually usually come up with some fairly fairly good tidbits. And this study they've titled. A number of titles here. Um, the big, the big survey title is "Dueling Realities: 
Amid multiple crises, Trump and Biden supporters see different priorities and futures for the nation. Uh, as if we needed someone to tell us this uh, with data, right, <laughs> Carmen? Right. But sometimes it's nice to have some data to uh, to kind of prove our our sense of things, our, our anecdotal sense of things. Um, and so they have a subsection uh, called pessimism, optimism, and polarization. And so they're measuring uh, what you know what Republicans and Democrats, respectively, uh, and also some. Uh, uh, like you said, uh, religious subgroups of Americans think about uh, the state of America and uh, the trend line we're in and how polarized we are. And uh, one thing that jumped out to me from the top paragraph is that they say, notably, our mood is slightly less pessimistic than it was ahead of the 2016 elections. Uh, okay, so lot, that stood out to even, me. No, that's that stood out to me as to well. Me. Like when I looked at the when I looked at the graphic representation of this, and all of those lines are trending in an upward direction. Like people yeah. across the board are more positive now about the current status and the future outlook than they were four years ago. I have to yeah. think that psychologically. That that is going to bear itself out in how people actually vote. I mean, I'm not making predictions here, but if you're feeling better now than you did four years ago about the money in your pocket or whatever, what however it is that you're judging whether or not things are trending in the right direction, um, that has to be significant. I don't think anybody's talking about that. No, it's I mean, we're we're I mean, we're not we're still in the midst of a of a pandemic or at least at yeah. least an an uh, uh, epidemic yeah. uh, scale now. And I mean, it's remarkable that, that, that we're any less pessimistic. How bad must we, we have felt in 2016? It's really what right? I'm saying. Like, how, how, I don't oh remember. I don't remember feeling that bad, but apparently we felt really bad. I mean, I mean, we're there's there are markers in this study uh, that affirm uh, our concern about polarization and stuff. But like, that's good news. Yeah, that's good news. All right. I want to talk uh, about issue priorities because that's really yeah. where I see this like glaring difference for evangelical Christians, sure. particularly those of us who happen to also be white. Um, but we have to take a super brief break. And when we come back, um, I'm going to ask Matt Hawkins why white evangelical Christians are the only ones in the country who think abortion is a top tier issue. We'll be right yeah. back. Continuing my conversation with Matthew Hawkins. He's the former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty, Liberty Commission. He served in Washington, D.C. The issues that are before us as a, um, as a citizenry are of interest to him, particularly at the intersection of faith and politics. Um, all right, so we are looking together at the Public Religion Research Institute American Values Survey 2020. Yep. And in here, um, we discover that... Um, so although the coronavirus pandemic leads the list of the top three critical issues um, for most people across the country, religiously affiliated yeah. or unaffiliated, um, white evangelical Protestants stand out. Uh, their top tier, our top tier issue um, in this survey is abortion. And actually, coronavirus doesn't even make the top three list for white evangelical Protestants. Yeah. Um that's a standout because abortion doesn't even make the list for anybody else. Yeah. It's really interesting. Um, 
it, it's hard to it's hard for me to frankly get my head around what's kind of the you know what we're looking at from this data as far as like truth of, of where we are yeah. here um on, on the one hand i think uh, it, it does speak to um how well uh, the pro-life community has done within evangelical protestant uh churches uh, to advance a pro-life, uh, a view of pro-life, uh, frankly, anti-abortion um, uh, positions. Uh, I think that's success, right? Uh, but it hasn't really translated to outside uh, our evangelical Protestant circles as well as we might have hoped. Now, I think you would probably glean some other data from elsewhere um, uh, with respect to polling that indicates Americans, on when focused on the abortion issue, uh, they actually do affirm a desire for restrictions uh, for particularly late-term abortion and even and even uh, you know second trimester uh, abortions. And so I think there's more agreement um, on the abortion issue than necessarily is gleaned here. Um, but it is interesting that uh, out of out of the the uh, religious subgroups, and they've listed compared to uh, so white evangelical Protestants, white mainline Protestants, uh, black Protestants, white Catholics, Hispanic Catholics, Hispanic Protestants, um, and then you've got other Christians and and non uh, Christian religions. Um, obviously, the pandemic uh, is a top three issue for all other religious categories. Except white evangelical Protestants, that's that's interesting. Um, yeah, I thought it was fascinating. Well, that's uh, like a that's I, a fascinating I, outcome. I'm, yeah, um, I, I'm not sure what completely to make of it. I, uh, fairness, the fairness my, of the my, presidential election, I thought was also like yeah. a surprising top tier critical issue. Yeah, almost for everybody. Yeah. I mean, yeah. almost everybody is concerned about that. Um, only the yeah. religiously unaffiliated and Hispanic Protestants don't see that as a as a top three critical issue. Um, I just I think that it's what I think is helpful about this is it's a conversation starter. It's an opportunity yeah. for me to turn to somebody else and say, hey, um, what about you? Um, because maybe healthcare, because healthcare actually does make it into the top um, three in terms of critical issues for four other yeah. um, identifiable groups, um, Hispanic Protestants, white Catholics, other Christians and the religiously unaffiliated are concerned. I mean, about healthcare as a top three critical issue. Maybe, maybe abortion is in that for them because for them it's really a conversation about quote unquote women's yeah. health care. So yeah. it, there, there's That's a little possible. bit of this. It's like you'd like to talk to someone who answered the question and say, you know, you'd like you'd like to know more. But I do think that this kind of data gives us an opportunity to start a conversation with somebody else about, hey, what are your three top critical issues? If terrorism, you know, is terrorism a bigger issue for you or crime? I mean, Hispanic Protestants, crime is number one. That is their number yeah. one concern. Well, that's a neighborhood issue. Like, yeah. right? That's a zip code issue. Um, yeah. You know, that's a that's a how do I feel when my, I mean, I remember having this conversation with D.A. Horton. He's like, would you ever, he's talking to me, would you ever put your hair in a ponytail and drive in a convertible and park in uh, your Walmart parking lot? And I'm like, yes. And he's like, a Hispanic woman would never do that. She'd be absolutely terrified and fear for her life. Huh, yeah. And so, I mean, just yeah. I'm saying, like, I, cri crime think, is an interesting is an interesting conversation to be having with our neighbors right now. Yeah, I, I think you you put your your put your thumb on it, Carmen. I think that's that's a good way to look at this kind of data is where the categories because we want to look at well, like where where our group we naturally gravitate towards where our group is and figure mm -hmm. out whether we agree and see or whether or not we still fit in our group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but. A, a better, more neighborly minded, since we're supposed to love our neighbor. Maybe maybe that is a good view uh, to look at the other uh, religious categories and see where are my neighbors that yeah. that are not like me, uh, where what's important to them? 
um, we not we might not reach an agreement um, on what we're going to do with our cast our ballots uh, on this particular election day, but we ought to be able to engage our conversation with people who are not like us, um, but who also, frankly, uh, share our faith. Um, so part of the division here um, is, I mean, we just listed what seven or eight different uh, cat- subcategories of Christians. Um, right. Uh, we're supposed to be united in Christ. Um, so I don't necessarily expect uh, unity on political issues or even political priorities, um, but we ought to be able to listen to each other, and we ought to be uh, this this study these differences between us uh, us quote unquote you know white evangelical Protestants and uh, uh, even our, our our mainline brothers and sisters who are watching. Uh, we, we ought to be, uh, this ought to sensitize us a little bit to like, Hmm, um, my neighbor down the street who, uh, d- doesn't look like me and, uh, doesn't, uh, th- shares different priorities with me, but still believes the gospel, uh, and, and goes to a Christian church on Sundays. Um, this ought to prompt us, give us a little humility, uh, and, and see where we might treat, treat them not only as neighbor, um, but there's a whole list of one another commandments in the New Testament that we are obligated uh, to treat those brothers and sisters with. Uh, I think that's a good point, Carmen. Um, you're up to something that I was supposed to put in the notes for this week that I didn't put in the notes. But you're up to something, and okay. you were inter- you were interviewed um, by um, um, on CBN by the Christian yeah on CBN the Christian Broadcasting Network. So um, what you got to bring me up to speed? I it should yeah, be in sure my thing. notes, and it's not. Yeah, thank you. That's it. no worries. We will we'll give, we'll give you the high bar and uh, the, the quick notes here and uh, you folks can uh, connect with me on, on Twitter. Um, I have partnered with a group called the Matthew 5-9 Fellowship. What is the Matthew 5-9 Fellowship? It is a group of pastors and other Christian leaders from across, across the U.S., um, people who believe the Bible like you and me, uh, who are concerned with um, some of the division and the partisanship or polarization that we've seen in the U.S., which, by the way, is not as bad. Uh, as we're often we have to perceive that's a whole other topic for another time but uh, we 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 are divided as a country as as we just spoke as far as uh, political priorities um, and we a lot of pastors and folks are, are sensing that uh, Americans are fearful about uh, violence uh, mm-hmm. uh, around the election uh, and so this fellowship, uh, really is is uh, has is driving a, a message uh, and a call for biblical peacemaking, and so we've come up with a statement on violence and division um, that's available at Matthew five nine dot org, and y'all can take a look at that. Um, and basically, we're encouraging people to engage. Um, based on our Christian values um, and with our identity in Christ, not based on primary partisan agendas. Uh, We condemn violence as a political tool um, and any language that incites violence or hatred. Uh, We've got to press against that uh, pretty actively. Um, And, you know, we stand with majority of Americans where we're united. We will all want a peaceful, fair election, regardless of political beliefs. Um, and so we've, we're circulating this um, for signatories and uh, friends like uh, Mac, Max Lucado and Tony Evans have joined it this week. And so we're pretty pumped to see this roll out. Um, this is going to be an ongoing project for the next several weeks. Um, but again, we're, we're just looking for uh, Christians to be to model a better way uh, of peacemaking, and spe- and which is more active, we feel like, than uh, uh, than than peacekeeping, uh, and mm. uh, we can do that in a uniquely biblical way, um, and uh, and uh, we we think it's a pretty important deal. So I was uh, able to join um, Dr. David Ireland, who's a pastor in New Jersey of a multi-ethnic congregation there, uh, and we spoke to CBN on Wednesday um, to kind of announce the project. 
Uh, and so we're pretty excited with it. We'd love people to join us. Yeah, so that's great. So Matthew59.org. Um, Matt graciously sent me uh, the text of this prior to its release, and I um, am certainly absolutely supportive of everything in it. So if I haven't yet added my name, I'm going to now. Fantastic. <laughs> signed, signed Carmen yeah, up. I got signed Carmen name. up. No, no, it's really, it's a great effort. It's wonderful. And, um, and it is something that really every Christian can affirm. Um, if we're going right. to be Appreciate the that. people of peace uh, who are, you know, walking out in the world in the spirit of the one who is the Prince of Peace, if we're going to sow peace, you know, we got to be, we got to be peacemakers. So, all right, you guys should check it out. Matthew59.org. Uh, Matthew Hawkins, as always, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carmen. Yeah, we'll be right back. All right, we have all uh, heard and seen and read the headlines this week in relationship to big tech. I'm thinking here of the Google antitrust suit brought by the Department of Justice. Um, We have all heard and seen and read the headlines about uh, the giants of big tech being subpoenaed to appear um, related to congressional investigations. Um, Many of us have uh, watched more of the social dilemma and seen reactions and responses to that as well. Um, lots of people responding to the struggle of social media to censor itself and yet its total willingness to censor others. All of those conversations up next with Chris Martin. He joins us uh, again. His newsletter is called Terms of Service, and it will keep you up to speed on all things social. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. How are things going in your home? Everything perfect? Do the siblings get along? Does everyone speak with respect all the time? Of course not. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Struggle is a natural part of growing up. And if you have a teen in your home, you know they don't keep that tension to themselves. The drama spreads to everyone under the roof. But in the midst of the hassle and heartache, we must never forget that nothing can separate us from God's love and care. That's not just a cliche. That's the hope mom and dads can cling to when things go a little bonkers. If we could actually see what God is up to, we'd be singing during those painful times. Let's trust God for His grace when family life gets a little chaotic. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. Social media, the social internet, all things social. My favorite conversation partner is Chris Martin. He is a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers. He's also the author of the Terms of Service newsletter. Uh, Chris, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here as always. Yeah, it's good to have you as always. All right, so my my headline news that I want to talk about, but I want to talk about it second, um, is sort of what should we make of all the headlines related to big tech these days, um, including sort of the antitrust thing that's going on and all of that. But I want to start with a conversation about a post you have at Terms of Service, and that is these emerging trends in online content uh, consumption. So what I'm actually taking in and and how it how I'm engaging it. So can you walk us through this? Yeah, of course. So um, thank you. 
I'm grateful to have a number of friends who work in the online content industry like I do. Uh, in my previous role when I was serving at Lifeway, I, I, you know, I was creating social media content every day and observing monitoring social media every day. In my new role at Moody, um, I'm helping create content that will live online and I'm still watching um, how people are consuming content online. Do they, you know, just things like, uh, is video really popping? Do they really do, do, uh, people in the, I obviously, because of my role at Moody I'm paying specific attention to like the Christian social internet. So in the sort of evangelical subset of how people are using the internet to consume content, you know, is video really popping right now or, or are podcasts just popular or is it saturated? You know, if, if, if I had a friend who was thinking of starting a podcast, would I recommend that or would I say, ah, oh, it's just kind of overcrowded, you know, um, <laughs> or are, are blogs dead or are they still kicking just in a different form than they used to? Because everyone recognizes that the heyday of the Christian blogosphere was probably around the 2010s or early 2010s time. And we're 10 years past that. And so, you know, our blog's dead. So I have these kinds of conversations all the time and they're really fun. And I'm grateful to have friends who work in the space uh, with whom I can talk about these things. But there are two kind of emerging trends that I have recognized. And as I recognize them, I asked friends like, hey, are you guys seeing this too? Uh, and when they said, yeah, we're seeing that as well, that makes it you know, it's more than just anecdotal experience at that point. Maybe we're recognizing kind of a trend. And so this week in the newsletter, I wanted to share what I think those things are. And I've kind of seen them going on for about a year. Um, and they certainly were happening before that. But that's just kind of the, the area, the time in which I've seen them happening. So can so, so can I, I know. So I'm, you know, I'm a person maybe like everybody else who like if it's bold and you set it out there um, for me to see. I see yeah. it first. So, right. So I see increasing um, personalization, right? Like it pops. I mean, increasing privatization pops and then increasing personalization pops. So um, tell us what increasing privatization is. And then before you tell us what increasing personalization is, I want to tell you what I thought before I read the paragraph. Sure. So when when I, I saw two trends, increasing privatization and increasing personalization. And um, what I mean by increasing privatization is pretty simple. Um, when you think of the primary social media platforms you use, you think of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, among young folks today, TikTok. Uh, and, and when you think of those platforms, they're primarily driven by a public newsfeed or timeline where it's not the primary function of those platforms is not to be messaging like text messaging. Um, that would be the case with either your texting app or WhatsApp. Slack is a popular platform for that that a lot of organizations use or Snapchat is even a more personal messaging application that's also social media. But the most popular social media platforms these days are ones that are very public, right, where you're posting things to be consumed by large groups of people, not just sending things privately back and forth. But I think there's a sort of shift happening to where Facebook groups are really exploding right now. So while those are still technically public and not just one-to-one -one communication, a Facebook group is that, you know, uh, you're in a Facebook group with a bunch of other uh, moms in your, you know, in your neighborhood or in your area, in your suburb, or perhaps you're in a Facebook group with a bunch of uh, other people who really like uh, board games and you get together for board games nights with people in your community uh, or things like that where they're, they're smaller groups, definitely more private groups than the main Facebook feed and Facebook timeline. Um, and so those kinds of 
features within all of these platforms are really are really growing. Instagram's uh, direct message platform is really growing in popularity. Uh, Twitter is expanding how they do DMs a little bit, and a lot more people are using those for communication. So I, I think as people get and I wrote a blog post just yesterday, an article in the newsletter about what's under these trends. But I think a lot of it is we're just a, a lot of us are just tired of the force of negativity that exists in a lot of our timelines. And so a lot of us, I think, are retreating to communities online, whether they're groups of three or four people or Facebook groups of 500 people uh, who just have similar interests or similar values because we're getting tired of the conflict that's taking place on that main feed where we've generally hung out for the last 10 or 15 years and we're retreating into spaces where we're with a lot more like-minded people, which I think there are some positives and negatives to that. But what, what are you thinking before we move on to the personalization? So as a content producer, not just a content consumer, as a content producer, when I saw increasing personalization, my heart sank because I thought you were going to tell me that I now have to produce personal content for everybody, <laughs> uh, right. yeah. which is not what this is about. So no, talk about no. talk about increasing personalization. And after I read it, I was like, oh, yeah, of course, that yeah, makes perfect right. sense. Right. And the other thing, too, to tie a bow on the privatization, email is really popping again. Email never really went away as a means of um, consuming content. Like people have had newsletters since email started. But like uh, a lot of journalists, like like I follow a couple of sports journalists who started newsletters almost to just create a more intimate relationship with their audience so that they could communicate with uh, whoever wants to follow their content and read what they have to write and not be not have it be mediated by social media. Uh, I've done that obviously with my newsletter and a lot of folks are doing that. So newsletters are kind of uh, in vogue again, I guess you could say. Uh, personalization. So personalization isn't new, right? Uh, it's the backbone of the social internet. It's it is what makes watching YouTube so much more addicting than watching cable TV because YouTube recommends a video for you to watch next that could be from any person or any area of interest that they've they know you and know your interests better than you know yourself. And so they recommend a video that you want to watch. Personalization is really the keystone of social media and how we consume content online. But I think – that you know, a Facebook user who loves horses could see some horse-related content in her Facebook newsfeed if she has befriended other horse enthusiasts. But you know how else she could be assured of seeing some horse content by joining a horse enthusiast Facebook group. Um, so really, privatization leads to personalization. So I think a lot of people are wanting to um, go away from following. 500 people or a thousand people on Twitter and seeing what everyone and their mom is saying, uh, or having a thousand friends on Facebook just cause they kind of collected them over time. And I'm seeing a lot of people wanting, man, I just, I want to go to Twitter for my sports stuff, or I want to go to f Facebook just for my family stuff. I, I don't want any news on Facebook or I don't want any uh, personal connection on Twitter or things like that. So they're really kind of starting to, um, not only privatize, but also personalize and, and specialize their various platforms. Yeah, it is totally fascinating. Um, what do you think the future is in terms of the social internet? Social internet, the future is private. So I think we're going, we're moving toward, I think what the trend we're recognizing here, we're not going to come back from. So I think many of us are quickly tiring of the noise and negativity of the sort of mainstream social media platforms that we're on. And I think we're retreating into communities of like-minded users built upon shared interests. So I think, I don't think that means like Facebook's going away or Twitter's going away. I just think how we use these platforms 
is changing and a lot of us are going to retreat into our villages and make community with the people who are in the villages of people who share our worldview, I think briefly that is good and that it will, it will reduce content or not content, it will reduce conflict uh, because we're not fighting with people of other worldviews. At the same time, I think it's incredibly negative because we're going to learn to ha- – we're going to forget how to have a relationship with people of different worldviews or people who think differently. And I think ultimately that could poison us longer, uh, further down in the long term than if we just fight and have conflict and actually communicate with people with whom we disagree. It's totally fascinating, and it's great um, fodder for consideration for each and every one of us who has a Facebook page um, and and how we engage there has a Twitter feed and how we engage there. I mean, just on and on and on down the list. Um, so, uh, Chris, I love talking with you about these things. When we come back from this very brief break, I would just like for you to maybe help us survey, understand and relate to the headlines related to big tech this week. There are so many. It's a little overwhelming. So just like your sort of observations and thoughts about what's happening in that realm. Chris Martin, uh, Terms of Service newsletter. Moody Publishers in terms of how they are interfacing and interacting with all of us uh, via their online uh, content. He and I will be right back. I'm smelling coffee, birds are singing just outside. Here comes your mercy streaming in with the morning. Continue my conversation with Chris Martin. Uh, he is a, a, a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers. He's also the author of the Terms of Service newsletter. Um, Chris, tons of headlines this week related to uh, is Google a monopoly? How do we define that? Is it illegal to be a monopoly or is it just illegal to do certain things if you are a monopoly? I got to tell you, monopoly for most people is a board game. And um, (laughs) so I'm just saying like, right. And then we've got other big tech uh, under real scrutiny for censorship that actually ended up promoting the content that they were seeking to censor. Just talk with us about some of the news headlines this week and sort of your reaction and response to them. Sure. So uh, really there are, like you already kind of listed, but I'll kind of relist a few things going on. I mean, a lot of things going on. It's hard, quite frankly, to keep track. Uh, and it stretches the bounds of my understanding of of law, especially as it pertains to the antitrust monopoly stuff. So um, Google now officially this week, uh, the I think it's the Justice Department, uh, the, the United States government, yeah, has has the Justice Department filed a antitrust suit against Google. So this is the first like legal action that has been taken as a result of all of this investigation that's taken place over the last year. Uh, Back in the summer, I maybe even talked about it on here. I'm not quite sure. I I forget. But um, the four four of the most powerful men in the world virtually sat in the same room and testified before a Senate subcommittee. I think it was House House subcommittee on antitrust back at the end of of July. Tim Cook of Apple, Sundar Pichai of Google, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook – all virtually sat in a uh, Zoom room or, or whatever they use and testified against uh, and tried to defend themselves about uh, against allegations that they their companies are monopolistic and basically that they are creating products and creating the roads of that the the uh, the pipes through which those products are delivered and that they are letting their products get in the fast lane and that they are blocking other people's products that may be competitors from being competitive, right? So that that's kind of the 
all of them were facing similar scrutiny. For instance, Apple owns the App Store on hundreds of millions of iPhones, uh, but they also create apps in the App Store. And the allegation is that they are giving preferential treatment to their own apps and crowding out possible competitor apps that uh, and, and not being fair. Uh, they, they're controlling the store and not being fair in how they're competing. All of the platforms were basically accused of similar conduct. Google with search results, Amazon with third-party sellers trying to sell things and then Amazon crowding them out, and Facebook with social media platforms basically having a mentality of if we see a possible competitor rising up like Instagram back in the day, um, we're going to either undermine them in possibly illegal ways or we're just going to buy them and and maybe consider killing them just so they don't compete with us. Um, so they all testified before Congress back in July. And now actual uh, like last week or two weeks ago, that subcommittee released like a 400 page report detailing kind of their conclusions after hearing their testimony. And then uh, just this week, the Justice Department actually took the first legal action and has filed a antitrust lawsuit against Google. So Google's the first one they decided to go after. I'm not sure when or if they'll go after the other one. So that's kind of what's going on there. To flip to the censorship bit for a second, um, Facebook this week committed a crime against the Streisand, what's called the Streisand effect, um, which is uh, named for Barbara Streisand, who long ago tried to prevent pictures, I think, of her house from being shared online uh, in the earlier days <laughs> of the is, social. Which, of, like, seems funny in, like, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. I mean it, now that seems way, funny to us. Yeah. Yeah. The, the number one way to get something to spread on the Internet is to try to keep it from spreading on the Internet. So um, <laughs> earlier this week, Facebook and Twitter both messed up when they uh, prematurely and without much communication to their users tried to prevent a New York Post story from running about Joe Biden's son and some uh, conduct and some activities that he was involved in. Uh, and they believed – they were led to believe it was misinformation by their various uh, – uh, algorithms and and people who are led to oversee these things and acted too quickly and they um, uh, they didn't explain why they were th trying to thwart that link uh, to that article and it uh, ended up blowing up in their faces and getting the article a lot more press than it would have gotten otherwise. So um, I think though I'm always cautious to to call to say that they're censoring stuff just because. Of what I'm about to say, I think under all of this, the undercurrent, if you're listening and you're like, OK, but what does all this mean? Like what's going on? These issues are actually more similar and more related than anyone realizes. These two issues are a direct result of the fact that the that these companies have grown to such a point that their leaders and some of them are still being led by their founders and some of them like Google are no longer being led by their founders, uh, but like Facebook or Twitter or any of these organizations are growing so big, they're growing in an out-of-control way that the people leading the companies can't even fully control the companies that they're overseeing. So a lot of times, like Facebook or Twitter, will pull down content uh, because uh, automatically, with, it's not like there's some person sitting behind a screen that says, I'm not allowing this link to be posted. It's like, no, they don't have the ability to have individual people reviewing every piece of content. So if enough people report something as abusive or report something as fake or whatever, then there's like computer programs, algorithms that are designed to go ahead and pull that down 
and then have it be reviewed by a real person after it's been reported enough times because they simply don't have the manpower to keep up with the billions of pieces of content being posted every day. And so what we have is we have organizations in these big tech companies who have grown so big they don't have enough manpower and it would really be impossible for them to have enough manpower to be adequately controlled and reined in, which I think is why it's good that the government's trying to step in. And honestly, I'm not usually for like a lot more government intervention on stuff like this, but I think some of these companies, Facebook specifically, has basically asked for government regulation so that they have something to bind themselves to and kind of rules to follow so that they can just be reined in a little bit. So that's a, I hope that explains it's, it is very muddy, but these things are really more related than a lot of people realize. So um, the New York Post would be one example of an account that was censored, right, in relationship to this particular conversation. Their last tweet was still was still October the 14th. So I guess I'm wondering, like, even if they get to the place where they say, okay, we shouldn't have done that, they don't undo it very quickly, necessarily. Yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't looked at the New York Post's Twitter, uh, but yeah, it, they, they haven't... Um... I mean, if somebody like the New York Post hasn't tweeted since October the 14th, you have to suggest it's because they can't, not because they yeah. don't want to. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah it's think. interesting I'm to not, me. I'm not like, sure. Well, you know, I, uh, like to, I like to surprise my guests with some information in their yeah. industry. So yeah, there you go. I, I haven't paid attention there you go. to that. That's I, I, however, <laughs> am still free to tweet, and I am uh, at Carmen LaBerge. Chris Martin is not just any Chris Martin. He is Chris Martin 17. Yes. It's not like you're the 17th most important Chris Martin. You're number one no. on our list of Chris Martins. No, no, you're the no. only Chris Martin we ever talked to. Thank you. Thank you. That hey, means a lot. Hey, thank you so much uh, for, for what you're doing and how you're doing it and how you're helping us uh, do it as well. All things social internet. Turn to Chris Martin, Terms of Service. We'll be right back. All right. If you missed any portion of the conversation or you think to yourself, I'd really like to go and listen to that again, or I'd like to share it with someone else. The podcast is always faithfully posted at MyFaithRadio.com. You can look on the Mornings with Carmen page, or you can just click on podcasts and get it right there. Um, And it's a great way to share what we're doing with someone new. Maybe you have uh, a friend on social media and you'd like to have a conversation with them about the social internet. Well, see, you could share the conversation that we had with Chris Martin, and you could say, hey, let's use this as conversational fodder. Let's talk about uh, starting a Facebook group or what Facebook groups we're in or maybe recurating our Twitter feed or, you know, on and on and on, all kinds of possible opportunities for conversation. It's a great ministry conversation as well. Why is your ministry on the social Internet and what are you doing there? What are you promoting? What are you provoking? What's the soil you're tilling, the seeds you're planting? On and on and on. So you can go get it later, share it with someone new, use it to start a conversation with someone else. We got another hour of mornings with Carmen up now. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.